Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Acast Recommends. Every week, we pick one of our favorite shows. And this is one we think you're going to love. Hello, I'm Jeff Lloyd, and I recently had a baby with Ed Miliband. A baby podcast, that is. It's a spin-off of our show, Reasons to be Cheerful. It's called Cheerful Book Club, and it's conversations with some of the best writers working in the world today. You'll really enjoy our chats with people like US broadcasting legend Rachel Maddow, literary giant Ian McEwan, and the big short and moneyball author Michael Lewis. Feed your brain with ideas from the Cheerful Book Club. You'll find us on the excellent Acast app or wherever else you get your podcasts. Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from Ireland and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. On this week's episode of the Everything is Black and White podcast, I look back at 12 months of Tearful Rumours and Castinated. From Amanda Steary to American Investors Plus, we look at Lascelles for England and Rafa Benitez's future. I'm Andrew Musgrove and this is the Everything is Black and White podcast. Hello and welcome to the Everything is Black and White podcast. I'm Andrew Musgrove, today joined by Chris Woff. While I've been enjoying myself in Hamburg, Chris has been trying his best to wade through the international break. Just a few more days to go. Chris, have you survived? Just about. It's been uh, torturous at times, but I'm sure Newcastle fans in general will have been through that as well, having to get over what was a deflating second half at Old Trafford. At what point it looked like it could have been the point where Newcastle's season really kicked off. And we've had takeover stories, we've had various reports about Rafa's future and Brendan Rodgers and things over the, the last 10 days. So there has been stuff to keep us going, but it, it has been difficult to wade through it. As always, never a boring moment on Tyneside, and that is going to be the focus of our podcast. It is just over 12 months to the day since uh, the club officially was put up for sale by Mike Ashley. Since then, um, we've had quite a few links to potential new owners. We're still waiting for a new owner. Um, Only last night, today is Wednesday, so last night the Mail Online reported that very wealthy or seriously wealthy, I think the words were, uh, investors from America um, are interested. Before we dive in, I just want to remind you guys um, that this podcast is brought to you in association with eToro. And if you could also, on your iTunes or whatever whatever um, podcast platform you're listening through, uh, rate and subscribe and leave a comment if you can. Even if it's constructive criticism, we all welcome that, don't we, Chris? Well, very much so. Um, and... We'll get straight on then with the main topic. It has been a year, like I say, since the club was officially put up for sale. Since then, it's been a bit of a roller coaster for, for journalists, for, for Newcastle United fans, uh, first and foremost. And yet we still have Mike Ashley in charge. We have Mike Ashley more involved than ever, really, in the last than he has been in the last 12 months. I think it's been a bit of a learning exercise for everyone involved with Newcastle United, both from a journalistic point of view and fans and the club because 
the last time that there was really a takeover, obviously at the club, was 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 Mike Ashley, and that was before the advent of social media and before the twenty four hour news cycle, and so things have developed quite quickly since then, and and it's been a bit of a manic year, the the takeover saga that never seems to end. Um, we had the immediate aftermath of the club officially being placed up for sale. It had been on the market unofficially for quite a while before that. And Amanda Staveley had appeared at Newcastle versus Liverpool before the club was actually announced as being up on the market. In the days immediately following, there was Amanda Staveley's interest was known. She had signed a non-disclosure agreement, as had three other groups. Uh, she ended up getting to the data room stage, which is quite far through made three offers for the club, all of which were rejected. And then by January, a source close to Ashley um, spoke to Sky Sports and said that uh, she'd been a time waster, that PCP had been torturous to work with, exhausting uh, negotiations, and that was called off. And so then takeover discussions went quiet until April, really, and then reports came out that Mike Ashley had raised his price to closer to $400 million rather than $300 million. We then had the summer where nothing again really happened. Then a few weeks ago, Mike Ashley reappears on the scene. He's back at Crystal Palace at Sellers Park, the first game he's attended in 16 months. The game after, Mike Ashley's back at St. James's Park for the first time in 16 months and Peter Kenyon rumours come out that the ex-Man United and Chelsea chief executive wants to buy the club. Uh, and then Mike Ashley takes the team out for a dinner and a meal and we fast forward another week and a half, two weeks. Here we are in national break. There's now uh, rumours that a US corporation or group of, of investors with, as you say, seriously wealthy, as they are termed, are interested in buying the club. Initial uh, calls that I've made suggest that treating this with a little bit of scepticism um, and until a bid's actually made, nothing moves that further forward. And we, are, as things stand, where we are is that Mike Ashley remains owner Sources at the club say for the medium term they're planning for the main owner, but the club is on the market. And uh, it, until someone comes to him and makes a, an offer which he's going to listen to, then he remains the owner and seems to be becoming re-engaged again. Well, you've just killed the podcast there in two minutes flat. Summed it up. Might as well go now. Well, not quite. I mean, Newcastle fans are still interested in, in what that means for the current situation at the club. And that is... The fascinating factor, I've seen a lot of people on, on Twitter this morning talking about, is this latest rumour, is it a Keith Bishop plant? I mean, there's still this idea, which right, look, I find fascinating, that Keith Bishop yeah. is some sort of sort of puppet master controlling the media. I mean, that is always the the reaction. You can understand why fans are sceptical, but it, no disrespect to Keith Bishop, but it does appear that they give Keith maybe a bit more credit than he maybe maybe deserves because there's no way he's dropping this and that this and that in there to to make these rumors surface or or do you think they may have a point within certain aspects of certain stories obviously not every story comes from Keith Bishop but do you think there are certain elements where he's maybe on certain uh, TV stations certain radio stations where he does have a bit more influence well undoubtedly fans should be skeptical about things that are written about the club particularly rumours like this, but not necessarily because they they come directly from Keith Bishop. What I will say about Keith Bishop is that he does work in PR, he does, my understanding, speak to some national journalists, he does have some influence and he he does give the steer from his side or the Mike Ashley side, but I don't believe that he has this operation where he plants 
all these stories everywhere and that, that journalists will only believe that one side. Most respected journalists will, even if they did hear something, say if it was from Keith Bishop, and I'm not saying it has, they would usually check it out with other sources too and see from the other side. So I don't think there's this idea that, that he's suddenly controlling everything national media-wise about Newcastle United. I don't believe that's true, but undoubtedly he does have some influence in some areas, but I just think it's completely overblown as to how it actually is. But I understand why fans are sceptical, particularly when they see stories like this coming out. We're going to focus on Amanda Stavely in just a moment, but just on Keith Bishop, I mean, can you tell the fans kind of how you've been not kind of involved with Keith Bishop. He's, he's often sat in the corner of press conferences but doesn't really say anything. I mean, can you give the fans kind of an inside story into what it's like to, to oh, I suppose, work with Keith Bishop is the wrong term of phrase, but he is there quite often. He is there quite often. He hasn't actually been to press conferences too much this season. I think he's only been once or twice from recollection, but certainly between January and May of Last season, Keith Bishop was quite often at press conferences. Uh, he would come in, he would always say hi to everyone at the back, would sometimes shake everyone's hand, sometimes would just come in as Rafa Benitez did, so just sort of waved and was there in the background. Um, doesn't really say anything in terms of saying, oh, you can't write that, or doesn't doesn't ever stop Rafa Benitez from speaking. I, I, you could probably argue that whenever Keith Bishop has been there, Benitez hasn't necessarily been as open in what he said when Keith Bishop's in the room, but that's not because Keith Bishop is stopping him speaking. I think that's probably subconscious in Rafa Benitez's mind, uh, not necessarily to say as as, as much as, as he has done before. In terms of dealing with him on a day-to-day basis, I don't have that relationship with him. I don't pick up the phone and speak to him. He doesn't pick up the phone and speak to me. I know that there are some journalists who do speak to him um, and because that's he is, as the fans forum uh, notes confirmed, he has a PR relationship with the club whereby he consults on certain areas and he provides advice on certain ways that Newcastle should deal with uh, different stories and, and the way that they present things. But he's not the main port of call at Newcastle. Newcastle United have a head of media who is, who is the main port of call. They have a media department who we work with. Keith Bishop is not part of that, so he's not someone who we deal with on a day-to-day basis. Brilliant stuff. So on to Amanda Stavely. It was about this time last year when... Her name first came kind of to the front of Newcastle United fans' minds. Obviously, Liverpool fans uh, would have heard of her prior to that. She had a little bit of a, a similar experience, really, with Liverpool. You know, rumours that she wanted to buy the club um, or, or at least lead a, a bid through with her investors to do so. Um, with Newcastle, it was slightly different. Uh, the waters were kind of uh, muddled, would you say? There was reports that she would be leading an investment group. There were reports that she had her own money and she would be using that money to, to buy Newcastle. Um, it was quite a whirlwind of a six months. It was a whirlwind of a six months. I mean, my understanding was that, that she was going to lead an investment group, but there was going to, it was going to need investment from elsewhere. One of the, 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 the investment potential partners would have been the Rubin brothers who she approached, billionaires who own quite a lot of property in Newcastle, including Newcastle Racehorse uh, Course, I believe. But one of the questions I know that was always there from the Ashley side was, well, where's the money? Show us the money. And I don't think they were ever convinced that, that, that the funds were actually there, that she could raise the 300-ish million as you wanted. There was three bids made, but all of those, except the 250 million one she made, 
which was straight cash. All the other ones had caveats, including relegation clauses, HMRC clauses, uh, clauses about um, Rafa Benitez staying, certain potential, if Newcastle reached the Champions League, certain payments would come in from that at a later date and basically there was always question marks from the Ashley side as does she have the money in the end they decided certainly after they were pictured going into an Indian restaurant on the outskirts of London I believe that 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 wasn't something that that Ashley liked my understanding is that any takeover discussions he wants to happen privately and if they're going to happen in the media he isn't interested in that and eventually come January uh, a source close to Ashley spoke to, to Sky, I believe it was, and said that they've proved fruitless, exhausting, and he said that they were a complete waste of time. Stavely then did an interview with the Times where she rebutted that. She said, she outlined what the three bids she, her and PCP partners made were, and also outlined her vision for the club and that, yes, she she wanted to run it as an investment, but as an investment which would be successful on the pitch and, and bring their money off it. At the moment, as things stand... It doesn't seem that the PCP are now a viable player. Perhaps they will come back into the reckoning, but as things stand, it doesn't look like Mike Ashley wants to deal with them. If she was a time waster, then how did she make three bids, do you think? I mean, what what is the correlation between the source close to Mike Ashley saying, well, actually, Man of Stavely was a time waster, but Man of Stavely says, well, actually, we made three bids. And then secondly, if the price of Newcastle has come down to say 300 million now if she made a bid of which she claims I think she made a bid of up to 350 million for the club then surely now is the right time to to, to come back in and say well okay bid back on the table or do you think that the, the bridges have been burned I think the bridges have been burned to a certain degree except if she if Amanda Stavely and PCP Capital Partners can come back in and prove funds that is Part of the issue all along was that Amanda Stavely says she made these three bids, which I believe were sent via email and, and letter. But the Mike Ashley side of it was you can say that you're going to pay £250 million or you're going to pay £300 million with all these caveats, but where is the actual money? And they never believed that the money was proven that she had the funds, and that's why they referred to her as a time waster. She rebuts that and says that, that wasn't true. But the process or understanding is has now changed, and now... If you want to buy Newcastle United, you have to do. There's a London law firm who you have to go and speak to first. You have to show proof of funds to them, and then from that stage, once proof of funds are shown, you will reach the non-disclosure agreement uh, stage when you can then start looking at the books. Then you reach the data room stage, which goes even further back, and then you can start talking to Mike Ashley and make a potential bid for the club. That is something the club have brought in because as they see it, as they term it, almost tyre kickers have come along. And this isn't necessarily referring to Stavely, but there's been almost weekly interest from parties who've said that they want to buy the club and then it turns out that they don't actually have the funds to do so. I guess in a way, again, this is not referring directly to Manus Stavely or PCP, but it's a brilliant PR chance, isn't it, to say, actually, look, we are interested in Cass United. Again, not directly linking to any uh, previous potential bidders, but it is in a way, a very good PR stunt for any business to say, we're interested in Newcastle United. We know that we do a story here and we've been told by a source. You can see how many people are reading the story. If it's a national, bigger, it's a global audience in Newcastle United. And you can kind of understand the scepticism from from, from Mike Ashley um, around potential bidders. Definitely. I mean, we had a story uh, in, the, in the 
weeks after the, the club was put up for sale as well that, that a Turkish biscuit conglomerate, I think he was, was interested in buying the club and it was even the... the this, the report even alleged that he, someone close to him had said that basically it was almost a done deal. Then we spoke to people at Newcastle United, we spoke to even people representing his company and it turned out that it just wasn't the case. But he got his name out there, got linked to Newcastle. And that, this is the problem. that Lee will tell you that, that when uh, Mike Ashley first put the club up for sale in 2008 and 2009, that he had a similar situation where he'd have, he'd have people ringing the Chronicle's desk and saying... I'm interested in buying the club or such and such, and, and there was there was people that you would refer to as as time wasters or tire kickers at that point who wanted to be linked with the club but really didn't have it. And I think it's is it Michael Knighton, a famous time he was going to buy Manchester United, where he was actually paraded on the pitch, and it turned out that he didn't have the funds to buy Man United. So this is quite a, a regular occurrence with football clubs where you get people linked to the club heavily uh, who want their name out there, but realistically they're never actually going to become owner. So Amanda Stavely, I mean, the interest, she has said it, was genuine. Um, but we, do, we don't foresee, at least at this moment in time, her coming back in and, and, and making an offer. We don't, but as I've said all along and as, as we keep saying all along with anything to do with the takeover, I believe if PCP Capital Partners, or if anyone for that matter, is going to buy the club from Mike Ashley, it will be an almost done deal before it becomes public knowledge because or certainly will be far along in the negotiation stages because he doesn't want this to play out in public. Takeovers really rarely happen when that's the case, so she's going to have to come back with a decent bid and actually prove to Mike Ashley she has the funds to do it if she is going to buy this football club. At the moment, I'd say we're not at that stage. On to uh, kind of the other the rumours that were about. I know there was there was rumours of, of Chinese interest um, before uh, the Chinese government kind of cracked down on, on, on outward investments. Um, it's, it does prove that Newcastle is that global brand, but it is so frustrating to to get these constant rumours. I think if you probably wrote every rumour on a map, you could maybe even cover the globe since Mike Ashley's put the club up for sale for the first time um, back in 2007. Yeah, well, there's only... You have to think of the, of the price that Mike Ashley wants, which I understand is around £300 million or in excess of that. There are only a very minute number of people across the globe who are able to afford a, a football club of that value and it tends to be that you have investors coming into football they tend to be from certain areas usually you either get american investors which we've seen at the likes of man united uh, crystal palace have got american investment that's so that's one area come from bournemouth as well i believe then uh, from the middle east so you've got obviously the abu dhabi group uh, abu dhabi group at a uh, Man City, you have uh, Qatari owners of uh, some of the other clubs across Europe. PSG obviously have Middle East owners. Barcelona have got uh, influence from there as well. And then you're looking elsewhere to usually the majority of their interest is is from China. So you've got uh, Wolves are owned by a Chinese corporation. Uh, So are a few other clubs. Um, And so basically this is why a lot of these stories emerge from these areas primarily because if someone's going to be able to afford a football club, they're probably going to have links with these areas who, who have invested in the past or where there is actually the money to be able to invest now. Almost certainly. Um, just want to go back to the original statement that might actually, or a statement from, from the Holden Company back um, last October, um, where it was to sell to an owner capable of delivering the sustained investment in I can't even read my right in 
that the club that the club that is necessary to the club to achieve its kind of ambition. Um, hell, I could read my own writing there, but you can understand the frustration when statements like that come out from fans. I think one came out a few weeks ago, uh, maybe the fans' forum. I think it was where it was about only selling to someone who can take the club forward. Um, when fans hear things like that, um, they must sit back and just think, well, you know, it's that's it's, it's ironic, if anything. Yeah, that is the part of it which always makes you smirk almost and, and just think, well, does Mike Ashley genuinely believe he's doing that? And I suppose that his argument would be, well, I'm saying I can't do that, so I'm waiting for someone else to come along to do it so that you don't have another situation where you've got an owner like me who you become disillusioned with because they can't. So that would be his argument. I think I can't speak for him because he hasn't told me that specifically. We don't get to speak to him. But seemingly, uh, that would be the logic behind it because he certainly couldn't argue that he is taking the club forward because we've just, as we know, we've just seen a transfer window where Newcastle have made a net profit. Um, there hasn't been significant investment in a lot of areas of the club. They're, they're deferring investment in the training ground, which they even admitted in the recent fans forum they believe needs to be upgraded long term but they've said they can't afford to do that and invest in the team which again fans will smirk at because they made a net profit during the summer but they their argument is we can't sustain both those elements right at this moment in time so yes it, it is bizarre it, it seems uh, counterintuitive that he would make a statement like that but at the same time I'm sure that, that Newcastle fans if you ask them what they want the next owner to be like they would say something like that where someone's going to come in and is really going to try and progress the club because it was interesting that at the Magpie group meeting uh, a couple of weeks ago at the Labour Club, Kevin Miles from the Football Supporters Federation stood up and said, look, this isn't going to be very popular, but be careful what you wish for. He'd stood in rooms all across the country where fans had been desperate for a new owner and then the new owners come in and be even worse, the likes of Portsmouth and elsewhere. Newcastle fans may argue you can't get much worse than Mike Ashley, but you don't want just another Mike Ashley situation. You want the next person to be uh, someone who does have the club's best interest at heart. Hopefully, Mike Ashley does want that as well. Fans will be sceptical and cynical about whether that is the case, but hopefully uh, that is whoever and whenever a takeover does happen. Hopefully, we aren't talking about this same situation with that next owner. No, we're not businessmen we're not business reporters um, my maths is nowhere near as strong as our business desks and I'm not sure about yours but do you think it is better to have say someone like Peter Kenyon leading um, this group of, of, of potential investors um, you know four or five very rich uh, people um, with a with football brain at the, the head of it who's in charge of making decisions or do you think it's better to have one man or one woman with that kind of one wealth as opposed to five different people making up the one part of wealth, if you get what I mean? Because if you're looking for trying to f- kind of find these investors and you've got to make up the, you've got to make up the amount first of all, I mean, that's not exactly ideal or do you, th- do, you th- do you think it doesn't really matter at the, at the end of the day, if they're investing as a group, they all want the end goal. Does not matter if it's one person or five? Well, I mean, the easy answer I could give would be that it, it depends on a case-by-case basis. What I will say with regards to Peter Kenyon, whose interests we understand is genuine. He knows Mike Ashley, and Mike Ashley uh, seems receptive to, to Peter Kenyon wanting to take over the club. Uh, it wasn't, from our understanding, Kenyon's people who leaked it. I think it was one of the potential investors he approached. Someone close to them probably leaked this uh, to Sky News. But in terms of if you take Peter Kenyon, 
if he was to, to to cobble together a consortium who could have enough to be able to to give Mike Ashley what he wants to to leave the football club and so they can take over, which at this stage we understand he's, he's not even close to that, but he is looking to gain that. If he was to do that, then from my point of view, having someone who has the experience he does from Manchester United, from Chelsea... Uh, from working as a football agent over the last few years, the contacts he's got, he's worked with Middlesbrough as well, quite close uh, with Gibson there. If you can get someone like that as as the the front for a cons- for a group of investors who are coming into a football club, that for me sounds almost perfect, almost too good to be true. And I don't want to say that because hopefully it does turn out to be true from a Newcastle United point of view, but we're not at that stage yet. And I just think that he is the sort of person you want who could take Newcastle to the next level. Peter Kenyon's not going to come in just to make money back. He's He took Manchester United onto a global stage. He took Chelsea from a team middling in the Premier League to, to one of Europe's biggest clubs, uh, attracted some of the world's best players. That is, in theory, how he what he would want to do in Newcastle, and so I think that can could, in theory, be the best of both worlds. But as I say, we're not actually at that stage yet. On Kenyon, the interest is genuine, but at the moment, that is effectively where 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 it is at. Yeah, I mean, one source said to me uh, about a week and a half ago when I was talking about Kenyon, said the interest is genuine, but at the moment, it's almost a man wants to buy a football club who doesn't have the money. That is essentially the situation we're in. He has contacts and he's trying to put together a group of investors who could make a bid to Mike Ashley, but no official bid's been made. I understand that they spoke to, to, to the law firm in London and, and were asking about the price of the club and basically were told, look, re- return to us with an offer, come to us with an offer, a serious offer, and then we can discuss it. Um, so that's uh, the situation right his interest is genuine but he himself doesn't have the funds to be able to buy the club he needs to bring in those investors surely if you're a rich rich man or woman and it's known that you want to invest in a, a big business or even a football club I imagine that's probably how it works and, and them kind of avenues and streets you know if you want to invest in a football club you've put it out there someone or someone close to you has a man like Peter Kenyon knocks on your door, like you see, you've gone through his history there. He's achieved countless um, things that you know very few people have at two of the world's now biggest clubs. Um, surely it's a no-brainer. Well, you'd think so, yes, but it was interesting. I was at a, a event with the original Magpie group up at St. James's Park at the weekend organised by Newcastle Legends, which was in aid of Newcastle Food Bank. Um, which raised a lot of money. And Sir John Hall uh, was speaking and he was asked about why he thought that the club hadn't been sold. He said he believed that Mike Ashley uh, was a genuine seller, that it was time for him to go, but that the problem with potential investors coming in now is that if you look at Newcastle United, say if the asking price was £300 say if you pay £300 for Newcastle, then... In, in Sir John Hall's view, you're going to be spending another 500, 600 million over the five years afterwards just on players. So you, you're talking 900 ish million there. Then, if you're going to invest in the training ground, the academy, the stadium, you're probably you're going to be getting past the billion mark there. And it's a significant figure for someone to put that money in, unless you do have the funds of, of, of say, the Middle Eastern royal family. A billion pounds, even for for the majority of billionaires, is a significant portion of 
their own wealth. And so this is this is the issue and you need to look at it like that. There aren't that many people who can afford a club in that way. Yes, if you're getting together a group of investors, you're not going to be putting all the money in necessarily for that. But for, in football, there's no guarantees. And you look at Newcastle United at the moment, you could end up spending 300 million buying the team. Even if you came in before January, say put 50 to 100 million at the team. So you're talking 400-ish million there. And Newcastle could get relegated, and then immediately the asset you've bought is worth half the the money you've just put in for it. So this is this is part of the difficulty there. There's so many different ifs, buts, and maybes, uh, and also you've then got to factor in that you've got to deal with Mike Ashley, who, from all accounts, haven't dealt with it directly in terms of business, but for all accounts, he's quite a difficult negotiator. And there are all the caveats. It seems that he, he may, or at least proposed to PCP, the idea that he may retain sports direct advertising at St James's Park for a while he may want a, a relationship with the club store or sell merchandise and these sorts of things which other investors may think well I want nothing to do with that if I want to take over the club I want to take over the club and that there's so many different factors to this and it's so much more complicated unfortunately than just saying he has 300 million pounds we buy this football club but then surely if he's a genuine seller as in the opinion of Sir John Hall there someone offers you 300 million pounds, no strings attached, and you want out, surely you, you, you just go. In theory, yes, but the only person, or the only group that we understand who was offered 300 million, and it wasn't no strings attached, uh, it had various caveats, was Amanda Stavely and PCP Capital Partners, who Mike Ashley didn't believe well, my understanding is he didn't believe that they had the funds to do that. They didn't actually show him the money, as, as he would put it. Um, so we, we haven't had... It hasn't reached that litmus test yet. We haven't found out... Someone hasn't come in and said, here's 300 million, there it is, I prove it's there. Are you going to stay as owner or can I take over? That hasn't happened. I mean, Mike Ashley himself would say, in terms of if you go by the initial statement, would say, well, I'd need to then check if it is an owner who can take Newcastle United forward. It's not someone who's just putting 300 million in to do, to just let, let it lie in the situation it is. They're going to further investment going forward, blah, blah, blah. But we haven't even reached a stage whereby you can say, there's 300 million pounds on the table. Are you going to accept this or not? Frustratingly, it looks like it will drag on. And just finally, um, one other rumour that surfaced over the last week or so was the interest of an apparent interest, rather, of a Saudi investment company. This is tweeted by uh, the journalist Mutaz Shahid, uh, who was talking initially about the, uh, the Saudi royal family's interest in Manchester United, um, and then went on to, to say uh, there's an investment group out there in Saudi um, who have an interest in Newcastle. Again, one of those where... We've kind of looked into it, and it's one of those where you do look upon it uh, sceptically. Yeah, initial scepticism. And uh, I think that uh, our football editor, Mark Douglas, replying to someone on Twitter the other day, probably said it best when he said that uh, he'll keep he'll keep an eye out for it. But if that was his exclusive... St- this is Acast Recommends. Every week, we pick one of our favourite shows... And this is one we think you're going to love. Hello, I'm Jeff Lloyd, and I recently had a baby with Ed Miliband. A baby podcast, that is. 
It's a spin-off of our show, Reasons to be Cheerful. It's called Cheerful Book Club, and it's conversations with some of the best writers working in the world today. You'll really enjoy our chats with people like US broadcasting legend Rachel Maddow, literary giant Ian McEwan, and the big short and moneyball author Michael Lewis. Feed your brain with ideas from the Cheerful Book Club. You'll find us on the excellent Acast app or wherever else you get your podcasts. Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from Ireland and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Story. Why is he tweeted out and why is there no actual story with any substance? If if we were to get a story like that, obviously we'd go big on it as most people would and for it just to have been a tweet, I'm sceptical at this stage. Maybe it will turn into something, but but initial inquiries are, and again, treat it with caution. So I'd say that, again, that's a warm, like even probably more so than the, the supposed seriously wealthy US investors at this stage treat it with a pinch of salt. But there is interest out there in, in, in the Far East. We, we know um, the, the media outlet, the National, keeps a very keen interest, uh, keen eye on Newcastle United. There's, there's various articles um, written every so often. We know we Mark uh, Douglas has a, has a contact who often um, does an article or two for us every, every so often about the, the feeling about Newcastle United over there. Sorry, his name totally has escaped my mind. But there's uh, genuine interest around, around the club, whether that will ever go into... Uh, Interest into actually buying club is is a, is a different matter. Yeah, and there is interest in the US. So I know for I know that for a fact that there has been interest from from China and there has been interest in the Middle East. But it, it's it's very different between something being uh, interest, some of which may be genuine to begin with, but in the end numbers don't add up or other business interests come to the fore instead, and they end up not buying the club or interest. And as we say, people who are trying to get the name out there or just want to be seen to be buying a football club when actually, uh, as we've said, Newcastle have had to bring in this this London law firm where you've got to go through before you get to the next stage because there's been so many people out there who who haven't been genuine buyers. There is interest, real interest, but actually going from that one stage of real interest to buying a football club is very, very difficult. And at the moment... It hasn't come through for Newcastle. Hopefully we won't be sitting here in another year's time since two years since the club was put up for sale and it still hasn't been sold. But uh, Mike Ashley seemed to intimate to the players at the meal a couple of weeks ago that he, for the foreseeable future, sees himself as being owner, doesn't think that a takeover is likely in the, in the medium term. My sources say that and Newcastle United in the fans' forum said that at the moment... Although the club's still for sale, there hasn't been any serious bid for it yet, and so we're not at the stage whereby it looks like Mike Ashley's going to move on. Yeah, just briefly then on the latest story that broke yesterday on the mail about these seriously wealthy investors um, in America. You checked it out. What have you? What have you found out? What do you understand? Yeah, these have been treated by people uh, who would be high up in the, in, in the club, and also we may deal with on the Mike Ashley side that. With, with initial scepticism that uh, they would welcome interest if it was going to come their way, but there hasn't been preliminary talks, never mind a bid. So within the report, it says that the, that the, the deal could hinge on Newcastle making sure they're away from the relegation zone by January and that any bid or that any deal would unlikely 
go through until after the January transfer window anyway. So all of this adds to the, to the scepticism that fans had where they're saying that is this just a ploy so Mike Ashley doesn't have to invest in, in, in the team in January because he says that he's close to a sale. I'm not sure on that, but I just think that, that from what I've heard so far, hearing from this story, is that the interest will be welcomed if it is there. But at the moment, it doesn't seem that, that they've come forward themselves and actually approached uh, Mike Ashley, and that is is, is the asset test. It's, it's fine this having leaked out to a national newspaper, but the actual thing you need to do is go and speak to Mike Ashley. So why hasn't Newcastle United been sold then? Partly, I think, the price. And I think that the price, I know a lot of people say it's it's far too much. I think for a Premier League football club, 300 million, considering the fact that part of that is is the money that Mike Ashley is owed back in interest-free loans, some of which seemingly have been repaid over the course of the last year, if if the fans' forum minutes are to be believed. Well, they will to be to believed, but if, if, if what, what is implied in the fans' forum minutes, we don't actually have the substantive details, we don't have the accounts, but it says that it seems to say that some of the that that 144 million that he's owed has been paid back. We don't know how significant a portion that is, um, but he wants that money back. It's always been said that he's, he's cleared the debts at Newcastle, and to a certain degree he has, but it's still debt to Newcastle United because he expects to get that money back before he leaves. He's not just giving it to the club. That is still an interest-free loan, so he expects to get it back. So then you're talking, that's almost half of the, of the 300 million valuation, and then 150 million for a football club, Premier League football club, given the current values of, of some of the of, of of the clubs in the country, I think that it probably is a fair price. But as I say, there's not that many people who can afford to pay that. I also think Mike Ashley is very difficult to negotiate with. You could say that the Amanda St- he found Amanda Staveley torturous to deal with. I can imagine that on the other side, and I think that she implied this in, in an interview, she would probably say likewise. And... I just think there's so much uncertainty around the club at the moment that there just seems to be more interest in other areas. Yes, we know there's untapped potential in Newcastle and people should want to buy the club, but I just think that they've fallen a little way behind during the Mike Ashley era and that has investors now looking for a ready-made opportunity to make money, be that at an already established top six or European club, or to buy someone from a lower base whereby you invest you could invest the money you'd have to invest in Newcastle to get them up to a level and you'd invest that in the other club and you're starting from a clean slate almost. So that's where I think Newcastle are almost in this middle muddied ground and that is affecting them at the moment. So in a way, it's kind of the mistakes of the last 10 years coming back around, so to speak, because what you're saying there is that instead of a new buyer coming in and we'll use kind of a buying a new house analogy that all you have to do is get new furniture in and change the wallpaper. What they'd actually have to do is maybe knock a few walls down and kind of even maybe have a look at the foundations and, and, and see if they need strengthening, if you get my point. Very much so, yeah. I think that would that would be that's a decent analogy to make. I think that this this the foundations aren't necessarily in place at Newcastle to really build something strong. Uh well not that's not necessarily the foundations are there in terms of what the club could become, but the building blocks haven't been placed on top of them during the Mike Ash era, in my opinion. You, There is then a slightly different point, though, that the Rafa Benitez is there in place, and I think that that does attract potential investors. I think him being there does attract potential investors, but 
the fact Newcastle haven't been able to time down a long-term contract, the uncertainty over that, the uncertainty over the Premier League position, in my opinion, is probably deterring some investors from from coming forward because they're they're not sure where the club is going to be come the summer and they could be investing in a championship club which doesn't have Rafa Benitez in charge. Come January, um, Senior Castle are still in the relegation zone or, or just above it. Things aren't looking great. Benitez is still in a job. Does Mike Ashley turn and say, my investment here is is under threat because getting relegated to the championship is not going to only cost him more money in what he would then have to invest as they got relegated, but also the loss of TV revenue. Does he then splash the cash in January? Well, the fact that he, he did back in 2013 and in 2016 when Newcastle were in trouble leads me to think that he will invest in January. But the complicating factor I think here is, and this is why I believe that maybe the, the, the Rogers story came out last week um, or the Rogers rumours came out last week, which my understanding is that Newcastle are still fully back in Rafa Benitez and that some agents have come their way and, and, and put some managers and Rogers is someone they've liked in the past before they had Rafa Benitez and so he would probably be a name they may turn to if they ever did dismiss Rafa Benitez but I don't think they're at the stage now where they've said it's three games and he goes. But I, if Mike Ashley would be looking at it in January and thinking... If I need to, if I need to invest in January, if I need to make sure that the money goes into this team, Rafa Benitez hasn't signed another contract. He could be gone in the summer, no matter what I do in January. Do I want to sign players he wants, and then Newcastle could potentially go down, regardless, and he's he's left with that, or Rafa Benitez could leave anyway, and then I'm going to have to bring in another manager next summer to deal with these players. Or do I want to make a decision before January if Newcastle are in a really difficult position? bring in another manager who I could see staying beyond the summer if Newcastle are in the Premier League or not, or just because uh, Rafa Benitez's contract is going to be up. And is he thinking that? Is he thinking, do I want to put money in for a manager who won't commit himself? I don't know the answer to that question. I'm not saying that is his actual thinking, but from the way Mike Ashley has acted in the past and his reluctance to spend when he doesn't need to, that would be my big worry because I know for a fact that, that during January and during the summer some of the players who Rafa Benitez wanted including Salomon Rondon who he wanted on a permanent deal one of the reasons Newcastle wouldn't sanction that was well we, he wants a, I think he wanted a three year contract we're going to have to pay £16.5 million to bring in someone who turned 29 last month um, on big wages injury record isn't great and yet your contract expires, your contract is in Rafa Benitez's contract expires next summer. We could be stuck with this player for another two years after you've left and he was your player. The next manager might not want him. This is one of the big complicating factors and one of the reasons why sorting out Rafa Benitez's future has left such a cloud of uncertainty over the club and I think that that will affect January and that is probably why these reports are starting to come out and why reports that Rafa Benitez himself is fearful of his own job because he's probably thinking that Mike Ashley's thinking exactly the same things because he sat in these transfer meetings in the summer. He sat in front of Mike Ashley in May and Mike Ashley laid out his, his, his idea of, of what could happen and basically said to him then that, that if 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 you're if you commit to the club long term, we can commit to you in terms of signing your players. And I think he's probably thinking that himself, Rafa Benitez. And that's not going to be an easy solution because it is essentially 
an unstoppable force against an immovable object because they're both so stubborn. Um, you can't really see one caving in, so to speak. Uh, but how do they meet in the middle? Is it a case that... Well, 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 yeah, how do they meet in the middle? Because to meet, to meet in the middle, you would foresee Mike Ashley spending 20, 30 million um, in January... But like you said, is he's not gonna. The likelihood is that he's not gonna give that before Benitez puts pen to paper, which means that Benitez would then have to cave in to sign a new contract to get the money to spend. Or on the other hand, Mike Ashley would have to give off Benitez money to spend to get Rafa Benitez to sign a new contract. And you just can't see either man saying, oh, well, "Okay." Yeah, well, I think Newcastle are in a catch twenty two situation. I think Rafa Benitez is in a catch twenty two situation because. I think that if over the next 10 games, which he's called crucial 10 games, Newcastle do drag themselves clear of the relegation zone or certainly in a better, to a less perilous position than they're in now, that may convince Mike Ashley, well, he's got the players he needs. I don't need to invest in much in January, so I'm not going to. But if Newcastle struggle throughout or in a perilous position, then as I say, that fa- that other factor may come into Mike Ashley's thinking. And I don't know if this is the case. As I've said, I don't know that that Mike actually is actually thinking this way. But just applying the logic that seemed to be in the summer, Newcastle may then think, or Mike Ashley may then think, right, I need to invest in January, but this manager won't commit to me long term. If he isn't going to sign another contract, do I want to give him the money to be able to to bring in the players he wants? Or do I want to bring in my own man first who I can see being here long term? It's a muddled situation. It's one Newcastle could and should have avoided. And instead, it's just uncertainty in just about every single aspect of the club. There's uncertainty over who the owner is going to be long-term, what the situation is there. There's uncertainty over the manager. There's uncertainty over transfer budgets. There's uncertainty over the training ground. There's uncertainty over the academy at the moment. Everything is uncertain. And all uncertainty does is it breeds further uncertainty. And when you're in a relegation battle, when there's uncertainty over what division you're going to be in next season you want unity and you want clarity in every other element of the club and Newcastle have none of that at the moment I guess though and just my opinion but you could argue that is that is systematic of the problem at Newcastle United that uncertainty has gone through the club for many many years um, and they never seem to be that quick in making decisions we saw it with with Steve McLaren, he should have gone before that international break. He was afforded two more games, you know. But I think it was Chelsea, and then it was Bournemouth, if I'm not mistaken. It was uh, Stoke and Bournemouth. Stoke and Bournemouth. Sorry, you know, two games which Benitez could have been in place for. You know, could have saved Newcastle from relegation. We've seen it where they're not, they're not as quick as making decisions as. as many people would argue that they should be they aren't but I also believe and I've I've made this point on the podcast before this earlier this season Rafa Benitez himself has been in my opinion slightly disingenuous in public when he said that his own his own future is not affecting Newcastle on the pitch and in other areas of the club it is and, and Benitez himself will have known and I'm not saying that Benitez should have signed a new contract because I wouldn't have done but he knows that the uncertainty over his own position creates uncertainty over so many other elements of the club. And that is in itself a problem. So yes, Newcastle have created a problem of their of the hierarchy's own making, but Rafa Benitez, albeit because he's almost been forced into that decision, 
has also been part of of that because he hasn't been able to resolve it himself. So it, nobody has come out of this well. Rafa Benitez is still loved by fans, but every time Newcastle lose, he's the one who has to come out in front of the media. He's the one who has to explain why he played has made certain decisions in certain ways. And the majority, the vast majority of Newcastle fans are still behind him. But more and more over the last few weeks, if you listen to Radio Fornans, if you read the comments and our articles, or if you see the, the reply to tweets, particularly during games, you see fans now questioning his tactics or substitutions or whatnot. And he's been left in that club position by the club and he will be thinking, do I really want to go through this any longer? My reputation's taken a hammer in here or is certainly now being affected more than it was before. It's, it's, a, it's a mess. It's a complete mess from top to bottom. And But I think everyone has to take their portion of the blame in that. But yes, predominantly it does come from the Newcastle hierarchy side. Newcastle versus Brighton on Saturday, huge game. Um, obviously, before that, Dunstan take on Gateshead in the FA Cup, which is uh, I think half twelve kickoff. So time to get yourself down there before you head up to St James's Park. We're gonna we'll hold a, a preview tomorrow. Um, quick ten minute preview with with Lee Ryder. Um, but Chris, if Newcastle lose against Brighton on Saturday, um, bear in mind Brighton have got a few good players. I mean, Glenn Murray. For I think he's 32, he seems to be in the form of his life. Um, they beat West Ham 1-0, first clean sheet of the season. They go in on a high. Uh, Matty Ryan, their goalkeeper, has spoken about the confidence in the camp and how they feel they can get something at St James's Park. Drew 0-0 here last season. Newcastle go in two points, still without a win. Uh, you know, Deflated after that Manchester United game with injuries, you know, Kevin Clark. Looks like he'll probably miss the game on Saturday. Rondon working back to full fitness. Yeah, like you say, there's off the field uncertainties. It's a mess. Newcastle are going into one of the biggest games of their recent history. I don't think that's a... Is that is that an over-exaggeration, do you think? I don't think it's necessarily an over-exaggeration. I think there has been bigger games in terms of we've been more at the business end of season, like the West Ham game when Newcastle had to survive, promotion season, the, the year they went down. But in terms of... At this point of a season, I think that that it is huge because Newcastle need a win just to relieve some of the pressure. And 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 the problem is part of the last few few days, what everyone has been talking about, including ourselves, it's not even about the football. It's about the is Mike Ashley going to be on Rafa Benitez's future, and the focus needs to be on Newcastle United getting three points on Saturday because as Benitez says, this is this is a crucial three month period leading up between now and Christmas. Newcastle played ten matches. I think seven of which are against teams who are currently in the bottom half of the table. Th- four of those games are at home, I think. Uh, although Newcastle have actually looked better away from home than they have at home so far this season and picked up a point at St James's Park. These are games that Newcastle need to get a, a decent number of points from. Between now and the next international break, Newcastle have four games which look winnable. And I... I I hesitate to say that to a certain extent because Newcastle haven't won a game this season. So no game for Newcastle is one you can just go, they're going to win that one because they're not in a position to do that. But they have to look at these four games and think by this next international break, we can't, we've spent the first two fortnight periods of the season when there isn't a game languishing in the bottom three without a win. We can't let that extend into November. They need to make sure they, they accumulate somewhere between I'd ideally say seven and ten points at least 
to make sure they are pulling away from the bottom three. Because if they don't, then when we come around to the next international break, you'll be sitting there thinking, well, who are they going to get any points from? At some stage, they need to start picking up results. Benitez knows that. He said it. And as much as I don't necessarily think the Rogers reports over the weekend are reflective of the situation at Newcastle, because I don't necessarily think anyone in the hierarchy is yet thinking Rafa Benitez is on the brink here. If Newcastle were to lose the next three or four matches, then they will probably be cut adrift. And then undoubtedly questions will be asked about Rafa Benitez. Not because fans don't believe in him and don't believe he's in the right position, but Newcastle may be just in a situation where they do need a change of ma- a manager. I don't believe that is the case. I think Rafa Benitez will drag Newcastle clear. I think he's the best man for the job, and I think in the next few weeks he'll get them the wins they need. But Saturday really is huge, and until Newcastle get that first win, there's going to be uh, understandable tension and almost trepidation on Tyneside because they haven't been able to win a game yet this season and it is a psychological hurdle they've got to get over. It, it is a bit of a strange feeling, isn't it? Because um, Satya in this position, say under Pardew, under McLaren, there was a real fear, a real kind of, um, kind of I don't know, the feeling in your stomach, you know, that right, you just didn't feel good, you, you, you were worried. And yet you sit here and despite Newcastle only picking up two points, looking far from a good Premier League team minus the first hour against Manchester United, there's not really that worry that you that you, you had, uh, as a fan at least, under certain managers that have gone before, under maybe John Carver, under Pardew, under McLaren. There is that feeling that, yeah, you know, it's going to get better because it is Rafa Benitez. Is that, is, that, is, it, is that a bad thing? I mean, it's not a bad thing, but you know what I mean? Like, it kind of how far does that go before it then becomes an issue because you are blinded by the fact that this is Rafa Benitez? There is there is that issue. I think that there's a slight difference in that some of the seasons that you're talking about, particularly the McLaren season, there was optimism at the start of that season that things were going to be better. I think that there's been a realisation from the very start of almost a pre-season and the way that Rafa Benitez has been and the message that's come out from him that this was going to be a season of struggle. So I don't think there's too much surprise about the position Newcastle are in. Yes, there has been a certain alarming nature of the way that they have gone eight games without winning and and that they've struggled for goals in certain areas. But I think the fact that, that there wasn't necessarily huge expectation before the start of the season, despite the fact they finished 10th last year, I don't. I think that has that has helped with the mood and why there isn't so much of a panic station situation. But I agree with you that, that just because the majority of people on Tyneside, including myself, have this belief that he is the man, the right man to take Newcastle forward and is the man who is going to get them out of it, that can't become blind faith. That has to, at some point, results do need to pick up. And that's why, from a Newcastle point of view, in terms of Newcastle hierarchy point of view, there has to be at some stage where a decision needs to be made because if they're thinking Rafa Benitez isn't going to be here at the end of the season anyway, it doesn't seem like he's getting... If they get to a stage where they think he doesn't seem like he's getting the most out of his players, maybe they will have a decision to make. I think things will turn around next few weeks. I think Newcastle will start picking up some points and we won't get that stage. But no manager uh, is beyond criticism and no manager can last... Uh, indefinitely without getting positive results. Newcastle turned it around from a nine-game winless run last season 
between October and December and then embarked upon a very good second half of the season. I think they can do that again. I think they will do that again. But they need to get over that first hurdle of, of winning that first game to give them the momentum because losing becomes a habit just as winning does and Newcastle are, have that losing habit and need to break out of that cycle. Fantastic stuff. Uh, just give us your score prediction then for Saturday. I think it'll be tense. I think it'll be close and nervy. But I'm going to try and be positive and I'm going to say that I think Newcastle are going to shade it 1-0. It's going to be one of those afternoons at St. James's Park where fans are going to be put through the ringer a little bit. But I, I just think Newcastle will shade it and get a win, which would be huge psychologically. Fantastic stuff. Fingers crossed. And just to, to finish, just to wrap up, um, obviously, international break, it's been Chris's favourite time of year. Um, I say sarcastically because his face paints a different picture every time it is the international break. You're not a fan of England's? Well, now you're going to get people tweeting me saying that I hate England and stuff. I don't hate England. I just I, I don't feel a connection with the national, yeah, national football, football team. Uh, but I mean, you know, good good results three two against Spain. Uh, when the squad was announced, obviously Gareth Southgate picked a lot of young players. Uh, players in the Championship came through. The Castle United fans talking, of course, as as they will do about John Joe Shelby, about. Jamal Lascelles, I think it's a fair fair to say that this time around, you know, they were them two were nowhere near getting in the England squad. Um, last last year, you could argue differently. Um, do you think Jamal Lascelles' chances passed, or do you think once the form starts to pick up, once the team are winning, Gareth Southgate might look again, or do you think he's so far down the pecking order that it's going to take a, a kind of a miracle form to get into the to the squad? I think Lascelles is probably closer than Shelby. I don't see John Joe Shelby playing for England as long as Gareth Southgate's manager. They've got history there, and I just don't think Southgate fancies Shelby, whether that's attitude-wise or for whatever reason he doesn't. He doesn't feel that Shelby's the answer in midfield. Jamal Lascelles, slightly different. I do think there's an issue in the way that England play and the way he wants his centre-backs to play in terms of being comfortable in possession. I didn't watch the game, but my understanding was he shifted from three to four at the back. But even so, the centre-backs will still be expected to be able to play out from the back and be very comfortable in possession. In my opinion, Jamal Lascelles' strengths are in a defensive sense, in an organisation and leadership sense. I don't think he's as comfortable in possession as other players in England in that position. I would question whether Lewis Dunk is a better defender than Jamal Lascelles. I think Jamal Lascelles is better. I, I would personally, and I don't see Lewis Dunk week in, week out, to be fair, but I do see Jamal Lascelles. So I think that the, Southgate has watched Newcastle's, each of the last Newcastle's two home games. I think that Lascelles is probably on the periphery. He's probably not next in line, but I think that he is in Gareth Southgate's thoughts. So I don't think his his chances have completely gone, but I'd be surprised if Shelby ever plays for England under Southgate. Do you think that Lascelles is aware of how Southgate wants to play? Because I think we have seen um, in certain element, in certain aspects of the game, or in Lascelles' game rather, where he has changed from what he's very good at is getting the ball clear, getting your head on it, or you're just whacking it in the stands, where he's then changed to be a bit more of that ball player on the ball. And at certain times, your heart does go into your, into your mouth and you think, oh, God, you know, goodness me, he's trying to play it out here. Because that isn't his, that isn't his strength. His strength is 
get get it out there. Let you know, let Fernandez or Lejeune um, kind of be the be the be the man on the ball who can play it out, who can pick the pass. And Lascelles, in my opinion, should just concentrate on what he's good at, and that has been, in many ways, an old-fashioned defender. You know, get a clear first. Quite possibly, yeah. Um, during the last at national break, Shelby did an interview with NUFC TV where he admitted that he was surprised not to have been called up for the March friendlies and also those games in September. So he himself is clearly thinking about England. England is on his mind. We spoke to him pre-season when he spoke about it then as well. So I think it probably has, maybe subconsciously, rather than something he's actively tried to do. Um, But for me, Jamal Lascelles is a very, very good defender when he focuses on the basics and when he has someone like Florian Lejeune or to a lesser extent, uh, Federico Fernandez alongside him, who takes more of that ball playing element f- away and is the person who can do that and Lascelles can deal with the other issue. I think that Lascelles is very good at that. Personally, if I was Southgate, I would be looking at Lascelles for that reason and, and I'd be giving him a call even if I wasn't calling him up and saying, look, if I'm going to pick you, it's because I think you're good at X, Y and Z. Don't change your game just because you want to get into the England squad. I don't think Lascelles has done that as I say necessarily Consciously, maybe subconsciously, it's come into his game a little bit. But I've been very impressed with Lascelles in the last few weeks. I think he has come back into form after a couple of difficult games. And defensively, other than from set pieces, which Newcastle need to address and hopefully have over the international break, because they've conceded the most from set pieces in the Premier League. I don't. I'm not worried about Newcastle defensively. It's at the other area end of the pitch where I think they need to solve their issues. Grand. Well, that's it. An hour or, or so's chat about. Takeover and England, Chris's two favourite subjects. We have bypassed Alexander Mitovic just for Chris's pleasure because you don't want to hear him complain about that. I'm joking, we were never going to talk about Mitovic. Uh, thank you very much for joining us again. Just a reminder, if you can, especially on iTunes, drop us a comment in the in the, uh, in the the comment box about how we're doing. Let's say uh, negative or positive, we'll take it all. Join us uh, later this week for preview ahead of the Brighton game with Lee Ryder. We'll have a post-game podcast as well on Saturday after the game. Hopefully, Newcastle's first win of the league season. And back next Monday for, hopefully, I say a recap of a very good performance against Brighton. Thank you very much for joining us. This is Acast Recommends. Every week, we pick one of our favourite shows... And this is one we think you're going to love. Hello, I'm Jeff Lloyd, and I recently had a baby with Ed Miliband. A baby podcast, that is. It's a spin-off of our show, Reasons to be Cheerful. It's called Cheerful Book Club, and it's conversations with some of the best writers working in the world today. You'll really enjoy our chats with people like US broadcasting legend Rachel Maddow, literary giant Ian McEwan, and the big short and moneyball author Michael Lewis. Feed your brain with ideas from the Cheerful Book Club. You'll find us on the excellent Acast app or wherever else you get your podcasts. Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from Ireland and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts.